1: a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet, finance smarter
0: if your business needs a new application
1: then developers will have to write code a lot of code if an application needs to be modernized then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply
0: developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code
1: assistant. IBM. Let's create.
2: I like a lot of it. I like living with someone. I like making a life with someone. I like the companionship and travel and the physical intimacy and i think i don't make great choices like a lot of us i had a difficult childhood a very difficult father and i think sadly like the idea of blaming your parents forever i know is really tiresome but there's some reality to that idea that we respond to being loved in the way that we were loved as children even if it was super fucked up and that is definitely something i suffer from (laughs)
0: That was Nina Collins, I'm Sam Fergoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Before we get into today's episode, uh, I wanted to start with something that happened this past weekend in my life. I don't always try to do the whole Marin thing of oversharing about every little thing that occurs, because it's not that interesting, and no one really cares that much. But um, since the show is delayed by a day... We usually release on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I want to give a brief explanation. Essentially, a few friends and I were up in San Francisco uh, shooting another short film, and uh, while we were shooting, um, someone, by the time we got back to my car, had broken into it. I imagine many people listening have had this happen either in their car or their home. I um, somehow have lived 23 years And not had that happen until this weekend. So when we got back to the car, uh, one window was broken and only two things were taken. There was a whole car full of things. In the car were so many items, so many pieces of luggage because I was driving folks up from Los Angeles. And stupidly, uh, in the back seat, I left my laptop bag and another person's backpack. I had put two coats over it, um, to block the bags, but I think people realized there was stuff in there, and they went in, and they, and they took, um, my laptop bag, which had my notebooks and my headphones and my, you know, my laptop, which means so much of the audio that I've recorded on this show, um, that is on that laptop, um, some of it is backed up, and a lot of it is gone and those notebooks uh the contents in them that can't be replaced but but i don't know something very strange happened in the immediate aftermath of of the car being broken into it's not that i didn't care it's not that i wasn't angry if i wasn't around friends and we weren't making another movie i i don't think i would have been as calm as I was, and I, and I probably would have just broke down and cried and screamed and yelled, and I still haven't done that yet, but uh, in the next week, I'm sure I will at some point, and yet it dawned on me, and this isn't exactly a profound thought, it's pretty prosaic, that all the things that we care about, all the items and all the things that hold the information we hold dear, they're just things. They're just just items. Most of them can be replaced. And if they can't, you have a strong enough brain that you can reproduce some version of it. So I don't know who took my stuff. I don't know who has my laptop. Um, I don't even want any of it back. I would take the notebooks back. And my name and address are in those notebooks. And if if the folks who uh, stole my shit... Want to return anything? I can't imagine they listen to the show, but if they <laughs> they do, <laughs> if they do, um, I'll take the notebooks back. Keep the laptop. Sell it for parts. I don't care. And uh, I love my coat back. I really. It's one of like the six things I look kind of good in. And uh, now it's gone. I got to go find a new one. So, anyway, that is what happened. Um, I'm sure many of you can relate to. Uh, that incident and it's and it's heartbreaking and it's sad and it reminded me of, of of that story Chloe Zhao gave on this show a few weeks back where she had the funding for her movie two weeks out a producer calls and says we lost all the money we can't shoot by the time she walks from the streets of New York back to her apartment she realizes that her apartment has been uh, broken into and in all her camera equipment and all of her notebooks and everything that she's been collecting in the city for seven, eight years, it was all gone, and the next day, she got on the phone with the producer and said, we have to shoot in two weeks, I don't care for how much money, we have to do it, and um, I feel a little bit the same, it's not as dramatic as that, but we have to do the show, I have to move on my life, and uh, if any of you are listening and have lost items and it's brought you down, do know that it is totally possible to move forward. And in fact, we really have no other option. So with that, our guest this week is the wonderful Nina Collins. Uh, she is the author of the new book, What Would Virginia Woolf Do? Um, it is a really funny and wonderful examination of what it's like to be a woman in her late 40s, early 50s, where their bodies are changing and and. And so much of their identity is, is is changing and becoming something else. And she really writes about that transition uh, beautifully in a way that's uh, also comedic. She may be a bit of an unconventional guest to have on this show, but uh, to me that sounds like the perfect kind of guest. We talk about um, you know, waning sexual appetites, what women want from partners at age 50. Um, we talk about her mother, the late and great Kathleen Collins, who was a wonderful playwright and filmmaker. She made the film Losing Ground, which was a monumental step forward for women of color in cinema. Anyway, I really love this conversation. It was uh, so fun and so silly and so honest at points uh, throughout. And I hope you like it. So, how are you feeling?
2: I feel good. I really should have done some research. I have literally no idea what the agenda of your podcast is, so you should tell me, like, in a nutshell. Do you want
0: me to tell you the agenda? Yeah. The agenda is, hopefully, after the hour of talking, uh, the people listening better understand you.
2: Okay. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. (laughs) So,
0: there's no, like, hidden agenda here.
2: Okay. What's it called? It's called Talk Easy. Okay, that's a good name.
0: That's a good name. That's a good name. Talk so did you want us to have like a very specific agenda? Like no, that, uh... mm,
2: no, I'm happy to talk. It's great. You're... What
0: if I was like an anti-feminist podcast?
2: <laughs> well, that would be funny. Actually, <laughs> if I walked into I would hope my publicist wouldn't have done that to me, but that would be hilarious. <laughs> or like a really conservative. Anyway, I would still do my best. Okay. Yeah, you know. but you're, you're
0: in safe. Uh, yeah you're in safe quarters
2: yeah I feel perfectly safe.
0: Tell me about your life right now. um where are you at? How are you feeling?
2: okay so so i'm forty eight and I it's a good question I'm gonna be forty nine in August and I have had like another you know, I've had like a kind of tumultuous year, good and bad. I um got divorced from my second husband and it was a short marriage of three years and then I wound up um, unexpectedly. Making this new friend, and he convinced me to drive out to California, and so I did it. So I drove out to cal I've never driven across country, and I drove across country in January. We spent two weeks and then rented this house in Venice. So I've been living on the West Coast for a few months. And then I've had this book, my first book published, and I've spent the last three or four weeks kind of on tour. So there's a lot of good and bad, like interesting change, and I have no idea where it's all going right it's kind of funny
0: it, it feels like uh, it could go anywhere
2: it feels like I could go anywhere like I have this kind of nascent business I have no idea what my relationship story or future holds obviously and I'm gonna go back to LA I mean back to New York um, next week because my kids who are all in various stages of kind of you know young adulthood will come and go a little in the summer and mm-hmm. I think I should be in New York for that but I'm hoping to end up coming back out to LA next year
0: So you're in a uh, in between period,
2: Mm -hmm. which feel I feel like I'm always kind of in an in between period. Maybe (laughs) maybe not when the kids were little and I was married to their dad, but I feel like I'm always. I was saying to someone yesterday, I feel like I'm always in this state, and I guess you know our issues are just always with us. So my default is this feeling of like, oh my god, I've put myself out there so much, and I don't know why or to what end, and I feel so uncomfortable, and I wonder what's next, but here I am. (laughs) Like, it's kind of like, but I've done it to myself, so I can't really.
0: Is that okay?
2: I think it's just my reality. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, you know, if I had stayed in one job and or stayed married, or you know, there are, there are ways I could have had a more stable, predictable life. Right. And I guess I've chosen a, not straight, to. Line a of straight line, a straight line existence. Right. Yeah.
0: But you've decided to do something else. Right. I I read here that um, at forty five in the fall of twenty fifteen. You created this group, What Would Virginia Woolf Do?, which is the origin of this book that is now out.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and it says, uh, it's a consciousness-raising group where women of a certain age could talk about things they didn't want to share with husbands, partners, and children. Um, I figured, since I'm none of those three...
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you could be a child. <laughs> I could. <laughs> Thank you. Um,
0: you know, it's always good when we have the guest point out my age. <laughs> It has happened every time. Oh
2: really? Is that predictable? I'm sorry. It's okay. okay. You can be
0: predictable for okay. a second. I'll okay. forgive you. Okay. But I'm not. You're not my child. I'm not your child. You're right. I could be I'm, I'm I'm someone's child. Okay. Um
2: as is everyone. <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: My okay. mom's listening. She's like, "What's going on?" <laughs> um but I'm none of those three. So right. l- let's talk about if if you wanted. Sure. let's talk about what's going on in this uh Facebook group that's now been elevated into a book
2: sure so i it was the fall of 2015 you're right i was actually 46 i just turned 46 and i was um starting to experience typical symptoms of perimenopause my periods were staggering and night sweats and hot flashes and um
0: sounds really fun
2: it's fun it's not that fun (laughs) um and then the biggest thing that really upset me that i didn't know about and hadn't anticipated and was surprised by was i stopped sleeping well and i've always been a really good sleeper and I started having this thing, which has now gone away, although for a lot of women it kind of never does. But I started waking up at like 4 a.m. and was awake until like 6, 6.30, like wide awake and not anxious or just wide awake. And it was really, I mean, imagine if you did that every night for weeks on end, you'd think there was something really strange going on. So yeah, I was 46 and suddenly really not sleeping. And I Googled sleep issues and realized quickly that this was part of perimenopause and I found among the list of perimenopausal symptoms one of them was impending sense of doom, which I thought was really funny. Like this is on like some you know medical website, and yeah, I, it's odd
0: because I, I feel that exact
2: well, sense of doom now. A lot so. of people do, but apparently if you're a perimenopausal woman, like you're like it's expected that you feel this way.
0: Well, to be fair, I was uh, I am half the age of when that happened to you. True. So there could we go. be a correlation. There's <laughs> there's no correlation. It's just a dumb observation.
2: Go so, on. Um, so I had always kind of liked Facebook. Like I was not a tweeter or an Instagrammer or a Snapchat or anything, but I kind of considered myself kind of good at Facebook at the time. And I had like a lively Facebook interaction with my friends. And so I posted a, a come up, a, you know, I did a post on Facebook saying, did you know that impending sense of doom is a documented symptom of perimenopause? And a bunch of my like funny, witty, feministy friends all kind of chimed in and we made jokes, you know, self-deprecating jokes about, Our health and physical state. And someone said we should create a private group to talk about this, not because we were ashamed, but because it was funny. And, you know, normally on my Facebook page, lots of men joined the conversation. And but this was like an echo chamber. It was just me and a bunch of 40 year old women saying the same thing or 40 and 50 year old women. So, um, a couple of weeks later I was in a, um, hotel room in Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis. I was visiting my son who's a hockey player in boarding school and I had a couple of my daughters with me and I was having a moment like a lot of women do at this age of feeling kind of ignored by my teenage children and kind of fat and like pathetic. And I don't know, it was late at night. I was in a Hampton Inn and I thought, oh, I am going to create this group so I can talk about these feelings. Uh-huh. And I, um... I called it What Would Virginia Woolf Do? It was actually one of a name that one of my friends, Margaret Lee, had suggested when we were joking around about names. You know, other options were like Black Cohosh Chronicles or I don't know what. And I thought What Would Virginia Woolf Do it was super, super funny. I had been um, working, I had just finished a 20-page paper on To the Lighthouse in this graduate school program I was in, in something called Narrative Medicine. And, you know, I'd read Virginia Woolf in college, obviously, in A Room of One's Own, and Mrs. Dalloway, and... Really, it was just a super dark joke. Like, she's this funny, I mean, she's this, you know, intense, amazing feminist writer we all admire, and she killed herself in her 50s, and the joke was maybe we should just kill ourselves in our 50s and call it a day. Right. Um,
0: Classic uh, Facebook group.
2: <laughs> you know, had I known that all of this was going to happen, I'm not sure I would have called it the same thing. It's a long title, particularly with the subtitle. It's of a the great book. title. It still makes me laugh every time I say it, which is a good sign. It's been, you know, two and a half years. It so holds I, up. I feel like for me, it works. And that's really what's important since I'm the one talking about it all right. the time. Um so, yeah, and then basically what I did is I made it a secret group, and I invited, like, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 50 of my closest girlfriends, and women had to invite each other. You could only join the group if you were invited, and it just grew really quickly. Like, within a few months, there were hundreds and hundreds of really smart feministy friends, mostly my friends in kind of the Brooklyn, New York area, but people started to invite friends from elsewhere, and... um we kind of realized we had hit on something because we were all kind of obsessed with it. And it started, you know, the very initial threads were kind of self-deprecating humor about health issues. Um, But it quickly evolved into more emotional issues around aging and just being women our age. We had a lot of early, great kind of book and culture threads that were all kind of fairly feminist oriented. I mean, the common denominator... um, with the women, even as it's continued to grow, is really intelligent, kind of edgy, funny women. And uh, we're not political. I'm not a very political person. And I felt like there are a lot of places on the internet to talk about politics, and I really didn't want it in the group. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Really? Because I I, I did wonder, um, as someone who's not a member of the group,
2: Yeah. Hopefully you're not secretly in there. I'm secretly. Like... People have asked, do we think we have any men in there now? And I'm like, I don't think so. We look at everyone's profile. But... Yeah,
0: not, not, no, not yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think I know what I'm gonna do this weekend though. <laughs> um, but you know, what about in you know, I'm not overly political all the time either. But I was thinking in the aftermath of Trump winning and and Hillary, who is um. Almost in the demographic of, oh, of she the people.
2: Is, oh, she is. She very much is. is. Was
0: that off limits?
2: No. So, and there was a lot of good Hillary talk. Um, I mean, the way we try and do it is um, nothing political unless it's particularly around feminism or issues that are particularly resonant with women in the group. So, right. um, and actually, after the election, we had a very moving day on the election because at that point the group was around two thousand women. We're now almost eighteen thousand, but at the time of the election. We were around 2000 and women all day were posting pictures of, we were posting pictures of ourselves in white going off to vote. And we were really optimistic that we were going to win. And there had been a lot of Hillary, Bernie tension in the group. That was a bit of a problem that we had to kind of navigate. So there was probably more politics in the group then than there is now because of the election and because of Hillary, which we all felt was like fair game to talk about. And there were a lot of bernie supporters and some jill stein and some trump and um Mm. but we tried to limit it and then of course that day was incredibly sad and moving in the group because we had just hundreds and hundreds of pictures of women going off to vote and then of course by the end of the day we all know what happened um and then in the weeks after the election we had some tricky political issues because there were some melania threads that didn't go very well you know the whole slut shaming question and how do we treat melania in the group like is she an enemy is she a woman we now have kind of come around to a No women bashing posts, period. Mm. So best to just not talk about Melania. Um, That that was a little complicated. And actually that's when I introduced moderators into the group because until then I'd been moderating everything myself. And we got a lot of women from Pantsuit Nation. We grew by like a few thousand people around the election.
0: What would you say is a recurring subject in the thread?
2: Sex is a big recurring subject. Um, I mean, we talk about a lot of things, kind of fashion, beauty, health, Children, Mm. although it's not a mommy group at all, so the way we talk about children is kind of different from other groups, I'd say. Um, Relationships, relationships with our parents, with our siblings, with our coworkers. But yeah, if I had to pick two things, I'd say sex and kind of physical health issues. Maybe mental health issues, too.
0: In the New York Times, there was uh, a whole paragraph devoted to all the kinds of sex.
2: Oh, yeah, that was kind of funny. That is
0: described in your uh, group. And yeah. Talked about.
2: The Times piece, you know, I was mixed on it. I mean, I think it made us sound a little more superficial than we actually are. There's a lot of very serious um, both support and emotional and kind of intellectual. Like Daphne Merkin, who's actually been a longtime friend of mine, was kind of obnoxious when she said like we're not talking about i don't know Jean reese we are in fact talking about writers like Jean reese um right but yes there's a lot of sex talk
0: <laughs> what, what what about is it is it like what to do at this stage of life um, like partners not working out it's desire kind, i in mean and out?
2: kind of the way penelope green wrote in that paragraph it really is everything i mean i think the purpose it served is that you know, There's a myth or a misconception that women over a certain age aren't having sex or aren't mm. interested in sex. And there is some, certainly with menopause, some libido stuff that comes and goes, although it happens to men too. But overwhelmingly, um, these women are having a ton of sex. And one of the things that's, I think, been really reassuring to the women in the group is to realize that we all – are actually having better sex than we ever were and more sex and we feel more confident about it and we know what we want and we're not afraid to ask for it. Right. And I think there's an aspect of sex when you're young that a lot of us feel w- was more performative and that kind of goes away as you get older, you know.
0: Well, this is good to hear. Like yeah, this. it's this good. good notes. No,
2: it's good. Um and then there's a lot of like Kind of specific. I mean, we just had a long, really funny thread yesterday about our opinions about men who shave their pubic hair and whether this was like grounds for dismissal or whether it was OK. Right. Um, what was the verdict? It was actually kind of interestingly tied. I'd say half and half. I think I was surprised. I think it's completely creepy when men shave their pubic hair personally. No. But... No.
0: what do you mean by shave? Do you mean like it's completely gone or there's like there's some? Well, OK.
2: Flesh? So there was some talk about that in the thread, too. Like some people were like, I like it. You know, trimmed. I like manscaping. Right. Other people were like, I don't want any trimming, and manscaping activity at they all. They want like and a some, forest of some people Jupiter. want it all. I mean, basically, it was as we find a lot in the group, understandably, like people Different are opinions. all over the map. Yeah. This is a great group. Yeah. It was, it was super helpful. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes. And we talk a lot about, I mean, some of the sex stuff also verges into just health stuff. Like, one of the things that people really don't talk about with menopause and perimenopause that's actually super common is. I'm sorry, I mean, you're a 23-year-old man, but vaginal atrophy and vaginal dryness is like a physical symptom of perimenopause that women really have to deal with. And it affects, obviously, our sex lives, and there are lots of things you can do about it, but it's a situation that a lot of women feel a lot of shame about and don't Mm -hmm. know that it's normal and that there are things you can do, and they really don't want to ask their doctors. I mean, it's really...
0: They feel shame because it feels like something they can't control.
2: I think, because they don't know what it is, and people don't talk about it, like I you know feel like I'm pretty well educated on like, subjects of female interest in general, and I had never heard of it until I started the group i mean it was one of the reasons I started the group as I felt like I was suddenly not sleeping and getting like back fat and you know I was having all these physical symptoms, and most of my friends are older than I am, they're in their fifties, and no one had told me about these like no one talks about them, and I mm-hmm. didn't know why, and I think it's just because you know, it's just not sexy to be talking about the indignities of aging and women are supposed to be, you know, sexy and beautiful for as long as they possibly can be. And so no one wants to sit around talking about the fact that, you know, sex hurts or their vaginas are super dry or, um, so they suffer in silence. And Uh. in fact, it's very common and for the most part, often fixable, although not always. And, um, You know, you can overcome it. There was just a woman last night. I did an event here in L.A. last night, and a woman was talking about how basically she hadn't had sex with her husband, who she loves, for like five years, and she finally got this estrogen treatment that's completely easy, and now she's like having a totally renewed, fabulous sex life.
0: Ah, that's amazing. I mean, after five years, I wonder what that's like to even approach the idea of having sex.
2: Yeah, and we see a lot of threads with women talking about that. Um,
0: Like fear around Being intimate again.
2: Totally. Or, you know, there are a lot of stories of women who have maybe um, been in long, unhappy marriages that became sexless for a long period of time. And then they're finally widowed or divorced and they're approaching dating and they're, you know, they're scared about all of it. The intimacy, the, you know, feeling vulnerable to someone, the physical, their bodies, you know, a lot of it. And I think the group has really overwhelmingly, I hate how much I'm using the word empowered because some people feel like it's a cheesy word, but it's just so applicable. Like the experience of being in a room with thousands of really smart, wise, experienced women who are experiencing the same thing you are and can talk about it in a smart, funny way. And it just makes you realize this is all perfectly normal Mm. and I'm awesome and, you know, have so much to offer. I mean, it really is empowering.
0: Right. I mean, it seems like the goal of the group is to normalize these pretty common experiences of women of a certain age
2: yeah i would say the goal is to i mean normalize to kind of eradicate shame and to comfort and to um and also to help us all i think when i started it i was feeling a little depressed i wrote in like the depression chapter of the book that you know once your kids are just leaving leaving home and i was in the middle of a period of not working for a number of years and wasn't really sure if I would be able to create another career. I, you know, th- I, w- I was having this feeling of like, oh, what's next? And are uh, the best years behind me and all that? And I think uh, one of the purposes of the group is to help us all talk about that and, and overcome it, You know, deal with it.
0: On uh, March 22nd of 2016, you wrote on your site, as I type, I'm wide awake at 4 a.m. experiencing a combination of anxiety insomnia, hot flashes, and night sweats that would put a Marine to shame. As a commiserating friend recently texted, this shit is not for sissies. Right. (laughs) Do you feel like you've um, moved forward from that place?
2: I have the physical symptoms for me. So uh, there are some women who never experience any of these symptoms and then there's just a huge range and obviously if women do bioidentical hormones or regular hormone treatment or you know there are all sorts of treatments that work to varying degrees um, there's no one path I personally am feeling physically better two years later Um, and I think so I'm not quite in menopause yet you have to have not had a period for 12 months to be in menopause and It's actually really funny. I mean, some women are psyched to get there and other women really want to hold on to their period. But you have this thing where like you won't get a period for six months and you think I'm almost there because people say you feel better once you're fully in it. And then you'll like get a period and be like, oh, fuck, now I'm starting it all over again. So I'm not sure. I haven't had a period since September. So we'll see. Maybe I'm there. But I am feeling much better. And Mm. I'm also not sure... I mean, I'm having fewer night sweats, and, but it might also be the experience of the group that has made me feel better. Right. Like, how much of it is psychological?
0: You know, when I hear you talk about what you've talked about in the last 20 minutes, mm. it reinforces this idea, and it's probably a very inane, stupid idea. You're already smiling and laughing. <laughs> it's just like, I, uh, I'm interested because I'm just... Are, uh, men's bodies are just dumb. They're just dumb. They're just not very complicated. In the same way, mentally, sure, yes, we have all the same neuroses and that, but biologically, there's just not this, not that they're... Yeah, no,
2: the whole idea of cycles and, yeah, you don't have any of that. And it's just so,
0: I I just wonder, the way you're describing it, to be, uh, just to have a lifetime of having to actively engage with your body in a way, I wonder, does it make you... Maybe more in tune with yourself because you actually actively have to be in tune with your body
2: i mean one would hope although there was a woman last night at this event i did a lovely woman who said that she had never been in tune with her body at all that she didn't even know she was pregnant till she was 16 weeks and she was trying which i thought was really funny like how could you not know i, I, I don't know um but she said she had spent a lifetime feeling not in tune with her body and that this time during kind of perimenopause she was feeling a desire to pay more attention so mm. Like with everything, there's probably different answers for every woman. But, yeah, I think you're right. Compared to men, we have no choice. I mean, there's so much more that's going on. I mean, for men, it seems like – I mean, there are obviously the health issues associated with aging. But from a – I mean, the only really comparable – you know, there's the lack of testosterone and erectile dysfunction, which is, is – again something that people don't they talk about it a lot in terms of like television commercials right. for viagra but like a lot <laughs> of women in the group like we didn't know, like when i first experienced someone who couldn't really get it up i was i didn't know what to do like i don't know the i don't know how viagra works or cialis works or how women deal with it with men and mm-hmm. that was another thing we all have brought to the group it's been super helpful
0: uh what was that first experience like
2: well uh I mean, it's just really natural for, for a lot of men. I mean, I don't quite know when it starts. I think for it's it's different for different men, but for me it was with a, you know, guy in his late fifties and you know, he's just I I, I came to realise that he had been using pills and without telling me. Right. And then the more we were comfortable together, he stopped using them as much and then he wasn't as erect and I was like, What's going on? And it was just a physical thing. you know, it was just a natural physical thing that he's going through. Right. But men have to figure out for a lot of men You know, do they want to take the pills? There are side effects for some men with some of the pills. Mm. And I think it becomes also... um,
0: There's a lot of shame around that. There's a
2: lot of shame. But you would think, actually, if there was a lot of shame, they'd be more comfortable taking pills and just dealing with it. And it's surprising how many men don't want to take the pills. I mean... That's pride. Well, it's also, I think, a little bit of laziness. Like, they just basically will let women... I mean, this is gross, but like in my research, I discovered, I mean, you know, men can orgasm with a pretty soft penis. And so some of them don't really care. And it's not really fair. I mean, one of the things I say in my book is like, for women, we've spent our entire reproductive lives, like going to great lengths, you know, we've gone on hormones, we've used IUDs. We've had a lot of intervention into our bodies in the right. service of sex and reproduction. Right? We've had abortions. We've had we've delivered babies. We've had C sections. I mean, you could just go on and on. Like, you can't compare a woman's experience with her GYN to anything a man goes through. Right? It's a, it's a real relationship your whole life, and for men, there isn't that much that they have to do except maybe use a condom and. You know, maybe at some point get a vasectomy if you're lucky and take erectile dysfunction drugs at some point. And they really don't – a lot of them don't want to do it. And mm. it's it's kind of unfair because, you know, women like a hard penis, basically. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, this, this is uh, – I've heard this before. Yeah,
2: it's a really basic thing. It seems <laughs> like something we feel entitled to, you know.
0: Entitled to?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, at least – I mean,
0: no, it's you here. Know,
2: I mean, well, a man, I mean, it just seems like again, we've we've done a lot in the service of you know everyone's sexual happiness, right. and we should get something in return.
0: <laughs> I'm not disagreeing. You know? I just I like the term entitled to.
2: Okay, well, maybe that was a mistake, but I mean,
0: no, I think you can be forceful on the subject. Know, it's fine. Whatever. <laughs>
2: a hard penis does not seem like no that much to ask for.
0: It's like the bare minimum. I, someone could offer as a partner
2: i am totally gonna <laughs> regret this podcast but okay whatever <laughs> i think i say this as much in the book so yeah okay great you're
0: just repeating I'm stuff just in repeating the book stuff in you're the book. not gonna regret anything this is lovely no, it's all fun you know this is um in terms of the interviews we've done in the show um we're talking about things we don't normally talk about okay and so you've been very illuminating i'm very interested in all okay. this good um here's something i want to know Uh, You have now been divorced twice. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. I've actually technically been divorced three times, but it really doesn't count. The first one was a green card marriage to ah. a boyfriend when I was a teenager, and um, nineteen. I was ni- I was nineteen. Uh, yeah, I was nineteen when I married him because my mother had died and we had been living together in Vienna right. and I had to come home. And the only way he could he wanted to come with me, and the only way he could work was if we got married. So we like really agreed we're just getting married for the green card, and if we actually want to like really be married later, we will do that. And we didn't, and we got divorced. Mm. So I really am only twice divorced. Only twice divorced. Yes.
0: Okay. Two. Two and a half. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's whatever.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm familiar with divorce, not myself, but my family's had. I don't even know. I don't count the numbers anymore. Okay. Um, how do you feel about the idea of now starting anew and 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 maybe finding someone else?
2: Yeah. I mean,
0: it's the first time you've signed on the show.
2: Yeah, we just we're just starting a blog on our website. We have this website called com, and we have this wonderful moderator who's a woman in her early 60s and she's an amazing woman and she's also, I think, twice divorced. Yeah. And uh, became a first time novelist at 62. Her name is Stephanie Ganji, and she's just written a piece for us on the concept of being post men. And it's a wonderful essay that we're going to publish in the next couple of weeks. And she's not quite sure in the piece whether she's post-men, but she's thinking she might be. And, you know, this idea of like spending your – there's a line in it that I just loved where she says something like um, – God, I think I actually – I wrote it down. She says – she feels like she's spent her entire life making a life or escaping one with guys. And I really relate to that. I mean, the way we – you know, so much of us structure our whole lives around our romantic situation. That said, I don't think I'm post man. I'm 48. I really like being married. Actually, I really liked being married to my second husband. It just didn't work out. And um,
0: this was uh, Joe.
2: No, that this... was someone else. That was a boyfriend. That was a boyfriend. Okay. Um, you know, I like being in relationship. I like, I like a lot of it. I like living with someone. I like making a life with someone. I like the companionship and travel and the physical intimacy and. Um, I think I don't make great choices. Like a lot of us, I have a very difficult, uh, I had a difficult childhood, a very difficult father. And I think sadly, I mean, I'm sure if he heard this, you know, he would just be like the idea of blaming your parents forever. I know is really tiresome, but there's some reality to, you know, we, we, we love that idea that we, um, we respond to being loved in the way that we were loved as children, even if it was super fucked up. And that is definitely something I suffer from.
0: Your uh, father and your mother split at age six, something like that?
2: Yeah, when I was a baby, they separated, and they never lived together. They didn't get divorced till I was around six. And they conceived my brother when I was three, so they were kind of in and out. But and they, he,
0: he had another child with someone else um, shortly after your birth, He right? did,
2: yeah. I was born in August of 69, and I have a half-sister who was like a secret love child who was born in December of 69. Right.
0: I mean, there's no question that that uh, environment informs how you approach all of this. Totally, I've thought about this a lot in my own life Mm. because, uh, you know, my mom's been divorced, my father's been divorced a couple, you know, everyone's been divorced a few times here. Mm -hmm. And the thing I always say to people that I don't really know very well, but they ask me about this stuff, is that I'm uh, seemingly endlessly skeptical Uh of giving myself to another person right but i'm bored with that already i'm bored with that right i know you're saying i'm 23 and could be your child but i'm telling you i'm bored with that already and i want to know how you've managed to fall in love and be married despite seeing that reality that situation not work out as a kid
2: yeah i think um I mean, I think right now I'm surprised actually this latest breakup, maybe getting older, maybe in some ways it gets harder each time. I feel a little bit like I have kind of PTSD from this and I feel very reluctant right now to open myself up that way with someone, but I'm sure it will shift. I mean, I think falling in love is not that hard for me. It's like falling in love with the right person. I mean, Mm. I tend to be drawn to the the men that I've really fallen in love with really don't like me very much. So that's a problem.
0: And what do you mean by don't like you?
2: I, I I think like a lot of women in Virginia Woolf, for example, these kind of strong women. Um, like I just feel like I'm kind of too much for the men I really fall in love with. My father won't deal with me at all. You know, I end up being.
0: But your father wouldn't deal with your mother either.
2: No, and I think I was similar to my mother. I think it's a similar reaction he has to her that he had to me. So. Um, I've had lovely relationships. It's not like I've never had relationships with lovely men who did really love me and who were super kind to me. But those have not been my most passionate relationships on my end. And So that's my struggle.
0: Yeah, that's a very... Specific struggle. Yeah,
2: I mean, basically, I'm trying to fuck my father. I mean, that's it's just really sad, right? It's like you 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 said it. Yeah,
0: your words, not mine. No, I
2: mean, I'm just I'm trying to get his love, right? So I'm drawn to these men who are going to treat me a certain way, and I feel like if I can get them to love me, then I've come, you know, I've I've won, and that's just never going to happen.
0: What What would your mother say about who you are today?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, she would probably think it was all kind of like funny, like in a nice way. I mean, she 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 was she had a very she was a very funny colorful passionate and, and such an interesting person. Um I'm sure she would adore my children and be super interested and impressed with them and um take a lot of joy in them. And I think we'd be very close. I mean we had a good relationship. I I I, I do really miss her all the time. Um as angry as I am about some of the things she did and I think she would really like how strong and capable I am.
0: Mm. It, you know, it's tough for me to um not say that like, you know, I know you and your work because of your mother. Oh, cool. And right. and her work has um met something to me and some some people that are close to me. Oh, nice. And uh hearing anything about her I'm I I am incredibly curious about her life and also simultaneously reluctant to ask you about her because in every interview you've ever done that I've read, mm-hmm. um, so much of the questions are about your mother.
2: Oh, I'm happy to talk about her. I mean, she is really interesting, and I'm always happy to talk. I like talking about her.
0: I, You know something I want specifically that relates to me and my family? I just mm-hmm. wanted to know, she was very prolific... And productive and, and always typing and writing and working on something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in fact, last week we had Julie Dash on the show. Oh, how cool. And she was talking about how she worked with your mom. Yep. And like held you yep, in Yeah, I knew arms. Julie.
2: Yeah, she used to come to our house. It's like, yeah, yeah, she
0: was talking about that and that is now full circle that we're here. Yeah,
2: that's wild.
0: Um, It's very strange, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And in, in all the writing that you do about her, mm-hmm. you're constantly bringing up. Um, not only her success, but the flip side of it, which was a deep depression mm-hmm. that she had. What do you make of all of that?
2: I mean, in the most kind of cliched, obvious way, I think it's not uncommon for artists to be dark, complicated people. And probably probably artists more likely suffer from depression than the general population. So, um you know and she was also very kind of vibrant and happy it wasn't like it was it wasn't like a william styron kind of depression you know she was she would spend a lot of time in her room writing and there was a certain complicated feeling about her all the time but it wasn't like she was you know locked up in a closet super depressed so
0: was the complicated feeling unspoken
2: um well it was certainly spoken in her work um with us I think there was a. She was very preoccupied with herself, and and so maybe more than the depression, I think the kind of the self-absorbed. You know, it's awful. You feel like such a cliche to be a kid and talk about my parents were so self-absorbed, and I didn't get what I needed. But there's truth to that, and mm. I'll probably do it to my own kids, right? I think there's a hard thing about and parenting is not easy, but she was just very consumed with her own stuff all the time. Her own work, her own work, and her life, and she kept a lot of secrets, and. um when I was particularly little she was gone when I, yeah, when I was little she was gone a lot and she left me alone a lot and I don't think that was very good for me.
0: Was there a conversation about why she was leaving?
2: Um, well she would go away for work or she would go away for love relationships or she would, um, you know, she would leave me with my grandmother a lot. I mean when I was super little before my brother was born kind of under the age of five she left me with a friend for basically a couple years I lived up in Woodstock with one of her close friends and she would come and go but I was kind of living there with this friend and her children. Um,
0: What was she doing?
2: I think she was fighting with my father a lot and really struggling with the collapse of their marriage and trying to figure out her career. She was a film editor for Channel 13, and she was making movies, and she was translating some things, I mean, editing movies. So I think she was trying to figure out her career, and there's a great screenplay she wrote called Women's Sisters and Friends which is about those years and the screenplay is a lot about her relationship with my father. I mean she's an, I find her work super interesting in the sense that I mean obviously for me it's very autobiographical so it's just interesting from a storytelling perspective but um the way she's her you know her work is fundamentally very much just about a, a woman's experience right it's not about race it's um you know, So it is about race, but it's really not. So Women, Sisters, and Friends is about this white woman and black woman living together and kind of the backdrop of the early 70s, but it's really about her relationship with my father, who was really, in this screenplay, just such an asshole, <laughs> and um, I think she was grappling with that.
0: Yeah. It sounds like she was actively and, and always grappling with him.
2: Yeah. I think so. With her choices with men, yeah.
0: Did she ever talk to you about her love relationships?
2: Um, Well, she was super happy at the end of her life. She married a guy named Alfred Prettyman three years. Well, they just got married like nine months before she died, but she met him three years before she died. And she was very much in love. And I think that was a wonderful thing to see her happy in that way at the end of her life. Uh, And the other men that she was involved with, she didn't really talk about there wasn't anyone really important that we were aware of I mean there were oh well there was a there was a love affair with a married guy when I was like eight, a guy named Henry Roth who wrote the um the short story right. that Cruz Brothers is based on, and that was a I think a quite happy relationship for her for a couple of years or l- at least a year different Roth different Roth, not the Henry Roth, that's right. But she did talk a lot about her relationship with my dad, with me. Probably probably too much in some ways. It probably affected me in not a great way.
0: Uh, she overshared, you though.
2: I mean, I was 12 when I learned about my illegitimate half sister and I learned about it in a kind of unpleasant way and um and then she called to the house. Uh, no, it was um I write about this in this memoir that I'm trying to finish. So on my 12th birthday, my father was a big sailor. And he always had these, like, 20, 24-foot boats that he would keep somewhere. And he had this boat that he kept in Seabreeze, New Jersey. For a while, he lived on one of his boats in the 70s in the Upper West Side boat basin. Um, So on our birthdays and, like, holidays, sometimes they would make an attempt to get together and we would do something as a family. So for some reason, we went on his boat for an overnight trip and he and I were sitting up – my mother was in the in, down down inside the boat somewhere we reading. And I don't know where my brother was, and my father and I were were driving the boat or sailing the boat. And you know, I was holding the tiller, and I was saying maybe I could have a sleepover at your apartment in the city for my birthday with my girlfriends. And he said, um, oh, God. he said, well, I've never had more than three or four people at one time in my apartment only once when lisa did it and i said who's lisa and he said i don't remember now if he said my other daughter or your sister but i said what are you talking about and um and that was kind of and then he kind of bumbled and told me that i, I had this sister and then when i went home that night with my mother i was hysterically crying and had her kind of explain the story and and then she then she was Crying and told me this horrible, you know, it was just a whole kind of drama that had not was not presented in any kind of thoughtful way. And then, um, so yeah, and they would fight and yeah, I don't think it was, you know, it was very 70s kind of divorce,
0: like 70s kind of divorce.
2: Oh yeah, you're you're too young. You don't know what that means. I do want to know what that means. Well, though. you know, in the 70s like you're like it wasn't nearly the same. Like my father never came to parent teacher conferences. There wasn't a fixed custody schedule. He would kind of come or not come or say he was coming and not show up and um you know, now when you get divorced, like when I got divorced with from the father of my children, people would use the word single mother and i didn't feel remotely like a single mother i mean even for all his flaws like we were parenting them together we were divorced we had a shared custody Mm. he was very much their father Uh, but i think in the 70s there was definitely that feeling that women were just they'd get divorced and they were single mothers and the fathers would kind of you know i'm sure some of them were good fathers but it was a very different scene
0: a different time yeah did your mother feel like she was successful
2: that's a good question. I struggled a lot with that when the success of Losing Ground happened. Um I, I think she must have felt she was successful in certain ways. I mean, she achieved a huge amount for for anyone, and particularly for a woman who died at forty six, right? She made a feature film, she made the Cruise Brothers, she had plays produced. Um she got grants. Like, I remember when she got this NEA grant, it was a you know, really successful, exciting moment. That said, she struggled a huge amount. I mean, the making of Losing Ground and the Cruz Brothers was really, really hard financially. I don't think she felt recognized. She never got the films distributed. So certainly not successful the way she is now, which would have, I can't imagine what she'd feel about it. I mean, the success of the just the um, the review and publicity attention that her short story collection got was just... Amazing, And, you know, the reception of Losing Ground and the, you know, Richard Brody's um, from The New Yorker's kind of adoration of her work and constant championing of it is so moving. Um And the way she's taught now. And so, no, not successful like this. Mm. But I think she was proud of herself. I mean, I think she knew she was talented and I think she, I don't think she had any doubt that she was an artist and like of what she was doing.
0: So she didn't have self-doubt about her talent
2: well I mean she must have had some self-doubt that I don't know about because we all do and and artists all do but she never I mean I never had any sense that she ever considered like giving up I mean I have a lot of writer friends who you know have written one or two books and then they think oh such a hard slog publishing and they turn to other things for 10 years or maybe forever I have a number of women writer friends who have you know, moved on, switched careers, gotten day jobs. I don't, my mother was a teacher and an artist, and that mm. was always what she was going to do.
0: Do you remember a conversation or a moment that you two had uh, when you're growing up? Maybe before she got sick, or maybe when she was already sick, but you didn't know she was because mm-hmm. you didn't know until two weeks before she passed.
2: Right. And she was sick from when I was 11 on.
0: R- right. Yeah. So there's eight years of her actually being sick and you not knowing. Yeah. Do you remember an interaction? That maybe in the moment you applied significance to it, but certainly now in hindsight, you can think of where she said something to you. She gave you something, some amount of advice or emotional truth.
2: Oh, so a ton. So in the six months before she died, I went to Vienna to study abroad, and um, she had gotten married. She got married at Christmas 1987, and I was there just a little wedding, like little. Marriage ceremony in our house. And then I left for Vienna. And she was very sick at that time, but was pretending she had some sort of spinal. Problem, some sort of back problem. And a few days after I left for Vienna, she was hospitalized. Um, and so she knew she had cancer. She had known for a long time. And this was her third recurrence and the one that killed her. But anyway, she started to write to me a lot in Vienna. So I have a whole trove of letters that you know we communicated back and forth for the eight months until I came home and she died. And in those letters, there's a lot of advice and um, acknowledgement of where she felt she failed and things she didn't give us and she talked about um being so consumed with her own pain that she kind of that the best she could do often when we were little was kind of take care of us but not really let us in too close so there are a lot of gems in those letters
0: do you think you've uh been a different mother
2: in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I mean, I think that I have been—I've been more fortunate financially than she was because I married a guy who was a successful hedge fund. That their dad, um, so I've been able to take care of my children in ways. She was actually extremely organized and capable financially. So I, I went to private school after eighth grade, and she was always taking us to plays and sending us to camp it wasn't like but but she really struggled financially and that was hard there was a lot of stress like if the washing machine broke when I was a kid I could see her crisis um and I think I've also well I've also lived longer already luckily so I feel like like it's it's it I take enormous pleasure right now like my I was 19 when she died and I have a 24 year old two 19 year olds and a 17 year old and I'm not sick now. So presumably, hopefully, unless I get hit by a car, I'll be around for a while. And when I can help them with things now um, and just be here for them in a way that she wasn't able to be for me, it makes me super happy. Um, And I think I've been – I hope I've been more present and more loving than she was able to be. But I do know that I have a lot of her same tendency to be distracted and self-absorbed and –
0: You think you have those?
2: I do think I've done that for sure. Yeah, I think. I mean, again, it's the way it's the way I was raised. It's the way I was loved. I think it's probably very hard to, um, you know, I I can be very impatient. I can be very. um, Yeah, I'm I'm sure I've done a fair amount of what she did. I'm sure I've done to my own children.
0: What were you thinking about?
2: Well, I was just trying to think about like what's the other you know what are what are my big flaws? I mean, impatience is probably not you know by a long shot not the worst. But uh, by the way,
0: what a fun question I've asked.
2: Really, what are your worst parenting qualities? (laughs) That's great.
0: I didn't really ask that. You turned it into that.
2: Uh, Um, I think in the same way that my mother was quite colorful, I'm quite colorful, and that can be good and bad, right? You know, my children have to deal with me writing the things I write. Although I don't ever remember feeling like any sense of embarrassment by my mother's work. And you know, my kids know who I am and so I think that's okay. Um, although they do sometimes get frustrated and they can tell me. I mean, I'm honestly – so like my fa- my biggest gripe with my father at this point is that he's never apologized to me or explained really the shit that my childhood was. And I, I have said to him – the last time I spoke to him many years ago, like eight years ago at this point, I said, if if you could just even write some sort of explanation for me or tell me your side of the story or you know engage with me in – the pain that I feel about my childhood, I would, I would want to be having an ongoing conversation with you. And he just refuses. And that is something that I have done with my children and will continue to do. And, um, and I think my mother would have too, had she lived long enough. I think she would have been able to talk to me, frankly, about the stuff that was hard.
0: What explanation are you looking for?
2: from my father? You know, I'd love to know so many things. I'd love to know how he really felt about her and why he did say to me at one point gosh I guess when I maybe it was when I was divorcing my first husband he and I were still in touch and he said to me had I known then what divorce would do to you I wouldn't have done it which I don't really believe is true but I'd kind of like I'd like to understand his experience of her and her strength and who she was and his experience of me I'd like him to be more interested in me and my he's really completely not interested in me at all. I'm very interested in my own children, which mm. I think is an important an important good quality. Um my mother was very interested in us. I mean the thing is with my mother is I think I very much felt we she really loved us. I think she was just a, you know, a complicated woman with a lot going on and a different time and not a lot of resources and
0: the way you talk about her is very careful. Really? Yeah. Well. There seems to be some something you'd like to say, some truths you'd like to put out there, but are a little reluctant to.
2: This is great. Maybe this podcast will help me unlock the problem in my memoir. That'd be great. Then I would like, I don't know, do something very special for you. That's what I'm in here. I do get 10% um, of the book, though. You do? Okay. Because I really like this book that I've been writing about my mother, but it is dark and painful, and it's complicated all the time to figure out like what I'm really, what I'm really after, you know, is it her story? Is it my story? Is it, so am I careful in talking about my mother? I don't, I mean, I don't see it. I, you know, I, people are always trying to get me to get at more anger at her. And I, you know, you can tell it, I feel very clear about my anger toward my father. My mother is more complicated. Like she, I wish she had, been more honest with me. I wish she had given me more of herself. I wish she'd been more affectionate. She actually wasn't particularly, I wouldn't describe her as cold, but she, uh, I'm more physically affectionate with my kids for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also had such admiration for her and she was so kind of fun and interesting. Like I've I've never met anyone so interesting in my life. So it's a little hard to be that angry at this person who I know really, really loved me. She was the only person who took care of us she gave me incredible strengths. I see her in my children. Her work is so admirable. And I love even the quality, I have so many of her qualities. And I like those qualities in myself, actually. So, you know, so I'm not that angry. I mean, like, I don't know, my therapist would say I am really angry at her, but I, it is hard for me to to feel that angry at her.
0: Do you say no to your therapist? (laughs) No,
2: I try and say, well, yeah, you know, people, you know, people, therapists will say like, you know, your issues with men are not just about your father. They're also about your mother. And I'm sure that's true. Like that feeling of being held at bay, of not getting what I want, of not getting enough love is something that I experienced with both my parents for sure.
0: I have to say that um, I read your piece in Elle from 2013. I think it was 2013. Mm -hmm. This We're, is like
2: therapy, this whole session. I should great. pay you.
0: Okay. Happily. so on. Uh, someone should hear. <laughs> um, and in that uh, story, you describe you and your first husband splitting up, and then you uh, assaulting violence, yeah. The, the woman that he was dating, his new girlfriend, and it's pretty graphic the way you describe it, and it, and it you know, you... Go to jail, but you know it's for twelve hours, and then the court kind of throws it out. I mean, it's it's all very interesting, and it all it all makes for interesting. Uh, I want I don't want to say it's not fodder because you make it way more interesting and insightful. But it's the type of stuff on the internet that I think can get blown out of proportion. Yes, and taken out of context. And I have to say, for someone who did these things that are kind of violent mm-hmm. and a little reckless, yeah you seem positive right now
2: yeah i would say that the one thing that i have really gotten out of therapy so after that divorce i spent like 6 years in therapy with this wonderful wonderful woman who i just adore and you know i like was three times a week then twice a week the one thing that i really know i've accomplished in my life is i've let go of my anger like i it for years i think through my 20s and into my 30s I was very quick to be angry, and that's probably something that I did with my children that wasn't great. I think there was more anger in their childhood than they should have had. And then I really realized in therapy, uh, you know, somehow, you know, the way that sometimes some things break through in therapy, just how much all that anger was just sadness. And so I think in some ways even the creation of this group is – due to my own belief that, you know, just that kind of Brene Brown, like, belief in vulnerability, like, if we can just express what is complicated and what's painful, we'll be better off. And so I really just don't feel angry like that anymore. It, it's very rare for me to get mad at anyone, really. I, I I just don't have it in me. It's interesting. So yeah, I do feel positive. Um, and a funny story about that piece is, it was the first published piece of writing I did. And my Editor is a longtime friend, Lori Abraham at Elle, who's now at New York Magazine. And Lori said to me recently, we had a drink and she she said, I feel so bad now that like I did I make you write that piece? Like, do you regret that you did that piece? And and I I don't regret it. I mean, sometimes I feel bad that, as you say, it kind of comes up and is kind of sensationalized. And I mean, you know, the truth of that piece is I mean, my husband and I never had any real, you know, we had kind of like stupid violence, like, you know, slapping someone's arm or, you know, yucky violence. And I did have a fight with his girlfriend, but it was really like a cat fight. I mean, I didn't like, you know, punch her out or anything. I don't know. I wouldn't know how to punch someone if, you know. Um, But anyway, it was bad. It was a very bad period. I was super angry and depressed when I was 37. And yeah.
0: And now you're here.
2: And now I'm here. And now it's 11 years later.
0: You have uh, four kids. Mm-hmm. You're um, how old now?
2: I'm 48. I'll be 49 in August.
0: Okay. You have four kids. You're 48. Um, You have a new book out. You have a memoir you're writing. Your kids are at the stage now where they have kind of left the nest. Yeah. And are starting their own lives. Yeah. Which is a scary age. Yeah. Uh, it for-
2: is scary, but wonderful.
0: Yeah. And I want to know... Uh, And the last thing I want to ask you is what do you want to do next now that your life is not dependent on raising kids because you've kind of done it?
2: I know. It's exciting. I have to say, and it is in part due to this group that I feel very like. Positive and excited. I don't. It's always scary to say what you want to do because then, of course, it you know, are you manifesting it or does it not happen? Right now, I think I want to try and live bicoastally a little bit for a while and see if I can pull that off in some way that makes sense. I'm trying to see if I can. This group has been super compelling, and I didn't start it to be a business, but now I'm kind of backing into trying to see if we can make it a business. You know, we have a website and a podcast we're developing and a blog. I don't know where that's going, and I'm really open either way, um, but I have to kind of figure it out because right now I'm spending all my time on it, like 24-7 dealing with all these amazing voices and stories. and So I'm going to see if that turns into work, you know. I would really like to finish this memoir about my mother, which causes me a lot of pain. It's very hard, and I feel like if I can't finish it, I'm somehow not smart enough, and like that feels like it's like the one thing that kind of hangs over my head, like I'd like to accomplish. And, you know, I honestly, it sounds corny, but I really just hope I'm around long, like a long time for my children so that they don't experience what I've experienced being an adult without a mother, and, um, you know, I hope I don't. I hope they all stay safe and healthy and happy and I can just be a good mother to them.
0: Nina Collins. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you. This is fun. Good. Totally fun.
0: Special thanks this week to Nina for coming on the show. Uh, Nicole Dewey and Elizabeth Shreve for making this episode possible. If you want to learn more about Miss Collins, you can do so on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. You can also find all of our episodes there on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Senoy, our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. And uh, for the folks who took my stuff this week, I really, um, sincerely hope that you needed it, that you needed it more than I do, and, uh, I hope you're okay. I'm San Fergoso, and, uh, I'll see you all next week. So long.
1: Enter now at T-Mobile.com unconventionalawards. See you there.
2: Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism and Marketing
1: District Assessment Funds.